If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is part of a message that, or part of a series that we're preaching, and it will be part of a message of that series, for this will be part one in a two-part, and I'll finish the last half of it next Lord's Day, Lord willing. As we consider the vision of heritage, as we're going back through and somewhat recasting and reevaluating what the vision of heritage should be, we are hopefully in the process gathering what the vision of the church should be and then squaring ourselves up with that vision. A very essential part of that is now what we come to in the vision for fathers. You might remember that Ephesians is a book, an epistle that is written specifically to address the doctrine of the church. And in the addressing of the doctrine of the church, he is also now turning to the family and expressing some application as it pertains to the family. But he's really speaking of Christ and the church. So that's why when we hear of the address now to fathers, fathers is going to have even a broader sense, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as Paul was saying that though you have 10,000 instructors in the Lord, you have not many fathers. And I am a father to you. And so as we now hear the word of God, chapter 6, beginning at verse 4, this alone will be our text today, though we will take this and look at other portions to get its context. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Our gracious Father who art in heaven, Hallow your name in this hour by sending your Spirit and empowering the truth and to every word of the truth that is contained and spoken. We pray that you would bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness, bring forth the wisdom from heaven, bring forth conformity to the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and apply the truth to us this day in our minds and in our hearts, and to us and to our children, in covenant with our great God and Father, our Creator and our Lord, our Redeemer and Savior, our Comforter and Friend. How thankful we are that you are all in all, and we pray that you would bless this time for your holy name's sake. In Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This verse, which is directed to fathers, includes both a positive instruction and a negative instruction. And we'll begin to look at more of those details next Lord's Day. This is a part uh, one of a two-part message and a part of a series in the vision of the church. But fathers, now this instruction is primarily aimed at you, at us. The wives are a supporting role in this endeavor. The responsibility lies upon our shoulders to train up our children in the Lord. Now children, you need to understand, and this will help you to understand as we uh, addressed you last Lord's Day and to honor and obey your parents, but This is a very weighty responsibility that your fathers have. And if we fall short of God's glory on this matter, which we do, and we do it often and we do it frequently, children, we do. You have to be patient with us. 
You have to bear that in mind. And you still need to honor your father and the mother. And hopefully one day you'll better understand and you'll be all the better for it. This little verse is loaded, loaded with meaning. Long ago in central Belgium, there was a little town south of Brussels. That little town is not known for its size, but for the significant event that took place there. The name of that town is Waterloo. We become so familiar with this name and place because not of its size and significance on the world history uh, that preceded that time, but because of a battle that took place there that marked Napoleon's final defeat. And so since that time has become very important in world history. Much like that famous little historic town, the Bible has some very small verses and sometimes even single words that pack in a lot of significant meaning. And this particular verse is one of them. And fathers, we begin this morning with an address to, to you, to us. Fathers are specifically addressed because they are the responsible person in each family to ensure that their children are raised up in the Lord. It doesn't call out parents as it did with children, obey your parents in the Lord. It calls out fathers, much like Adam did when he called out Adam. God went looking for Adam, not Adam and Eve, when man fell. But in order to understand and appreciate the address to fathers here, we have to go back and see some of the import of what is packed in to this tremendous little verse. And we have to do that with the Old Testament Scriptures. You will not understand really the New Testament if it's not for all of the import of the Old Testament that bears into the meaning and that gives blossom to the flower and gives to an understanding of what the truth of the New Testament is all about. As Augustine would say, the Old Testament is the new concealed and the New Testament is the old revealed. But here I want to see just a very brief survey Consider the import of the address, so we're not actually going to spend any more time particularly in this verse until next Lord's Day, but we're going to go back and we're going to look along the way of some of the Old Testament theology that is borne out in this particular verse, and we're going to pick up and gather and glean from the fields of God's harvest points along the way, and five points particularly I want us to see this morning as we begin to unload and unpack what... It means for fathers and the responsibility that they have to their children, unto unto the Lord for their children. So let's go back first of all and go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I was in seminary and I was going through parts of the Old Testament. And I remember a professor once said, You cannot understand the Old Testament apart from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the key that unlocks the entirety of the rest of all of the Old Testament. As we come through the Pentateuch and we have the 
the Genesis, the preface that begins to set its course through what the rest of the scheme and the narrative of the story is going to look like, and then the Exodus and where God is now covenanting with His his people as a whole, and brings them through and shows them a deliverance and, and a salvation. And now Deuteronomy is given to the children of those parents and now sending them into the promised land. Moses then reiterates the law and then sets forward the future of the time of Israel's history as, it, as Moses was called a prophet in the chapter 18, he also speaks of those things even after they would get kings and what the prophets would do in the exile. He speaks of all of those things right up pointing to the one Messiah that would come that would be the prophet for God's people. So Deuteronomy truly is not only a key to unlocking all of the Old Testament scriptures, it is a key for the entire Bible. Truly, certainly, that is for us in this particular verse that we're unpacking this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8, let me just begin reading there uh, as we see in verse, tw- in verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 days or 40 years. You, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. The first point I would like to pick up along the way is this little word, which is translated chastens, and it's the word, the Hebrew word, musar. I mean, that one word is like Waterloo. It is packed. I want you to say musar, musar. We're going to be like Mark Robinette today. Everybody say musar. Musar, because you are going to remember that word from this message until your dying day. Musar! Musar! You're going to remember that. The first point along the way is this little word, Musar. It's translated chasten here in verse 5, but we find a connecting point between fathering in an earthly sense, and fathering that God did for His people. We don't know this relationship of father to children if it were not for God bringing man and wife together, the church and the bridegroom. Yeah, right? That's where we've been talking. That's what last couple of weeks were all about. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. But you have an earthly metaphor and this wonderful relationship that we know as as marriage and a husband and wife come together and the two become one flesh, as Christ does with His church. And then we have the Trinitarian life being lived out in this covenant relationship as children come along through this oneness of a man and woman. And in this children coming along... We find a relationship between a father 
and his children. We don't know this relationship apart from children coming along. And so we have a connection here between the Lord and his people, which he calls children, and us and what God has given to us and our children, or children, what God has given you and your parents. There's this relationship. Verse 5 translates this musar as chasten. The single word musar is like Waterloo, as I mentioned. It's just packed. Almost 90 times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. Nine times in the Pentateuch, 26 times in the Prophets, and 50 times in the Hagiographa, which is the last portion, the third section of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, The Hebrew Bible, put together by the Masoretes, was done in three divisions, three sections. It's in a different order than our English Bible that we have today. But that last section, called the Hagiographa, is Ruth and Psalms and Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon's, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So the last book in your Old Testament Hebrew text is Second Chronicles. I think, now that I'm thinking about it, I remember Psalms is way back there in the end as well. But it contains all those wisdom books, the wisdom literature, along with these others. Now, it's mentioned there somewhat 50 times, but 36 of those 50 times it's mentioned in Proverbs. And Proverbs was a book, a compilation of these uh, wisdom literature as a father gives to his son. It was King Solomon primarily that was giving the Proverbs to his son. And he brings his son around him and he says, Now son, look at that woman. Look at the fool, the simpleton that's walking after her. Now I want you to, look, I want you to learn something here, son. Now son, look at the ant. Go and study the ant. Son, I want you to think about the sluggard. Look at that vineyard over there. And the whole thing about the wisdom of Proverbs, it's a father teaching his son about the wisdom of life. And so it's no surprise that the majority of the times that this word musar is mentioned in the Old Testament Bible are there in Proverbs, or at least the most condensed fashion that we have in the Bible. The word itself has multiple translations, or or we would say a gloss. When we're translating a language from one language to another word, to another language, um, we have glosses. So words have to have some kind of equivalency to them. So we don't take a single word and make entire paragraphs out of meaning to them because we can't do that when you're translating from one language into a receptor language or to another language. So you have the source language of Hebrew, and now we have the source language or the receptor language. We have English, and we have to have kind of a one-for-one. So the word musar is glossed over into the English but because it's so rich and so complex and so, uh, so packed with meaning, we don't have a simple, single English word that translates musar. We have these glosses. A gloss is a simple word translation. And so we learn more of it from the English words, but some of those English words in the Proverbs alone are instruction, Chastening, 
correction, discipline, all of those are from the same word, musar. The number of glosses indicates itself the complexity and the depth of the meaning, which then brings me to the second point of fathering, is this. The second thing that we need to understand about the discipline or child training is that that term itself, musar, denotes a correction which results in a theocentric education. Musar is a correction which results in theocentric education. Verse 5 in our text in, verse, or in chapter 8 there in Deuteronomy says, The Lord chastens His people. He musars His people. Now what is the point of all of that? What is the point in the chastening and the discipline and the correction? Well, the Lord chastens His people through all out, through, through all of the events of the Exodus Why? So that they may know in their heart that God loves them and chastens them. Training up children is primarily an educational process focused upon God. Theocentric, meaning that God is in the center of it, education. Now how was Musar often administered? Proverbs 22.15 says it was through the rod of correction. But most often, musar is oral instruction. The idea of an educational process is one that is necessary because it's a theocentric education that the child is needing. We need a theocentric education. We will never outgrow a theocentric education or musar as long as we are living in this life. We have to be educated and trained up in the ways of God because the natural man born in this fallen world since the fall grows up rejecting God, or he comes into this world rejecting God. He has a bent against God because of his evil and deceptive heart. And the proverb shows that it's fools that rejects discipline and instruction. So fathers, you need to understand when your child comes into this world, he is coming into this world with a particular bent in the natural mind, in the natural heart of a fallen world. And there's going to be a lot of foolishness that is just pent up and built up and stored up in the very character and the very nature that he has. And in order to gain a hearing in the ears of your child, in the hearing of of their hearts, a painful administration of punishment is often required. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. But the emphasis is not the punishment, but rather the education that the child is to learn. 
The rod of correction only sets the course for the instruction to be heard. And when a child is bound up in his foolishness, without the rod of correction, he will not listen. He will not learn. And it's the point that you need to gain his attention with the rod of correction that he will turn his attention now to what you say. But it is not the emphasis upon the rod. It is upon the theocentric education that you are giving to him. And so the aim that we have as fathers is to train this child with a heart toward God. This is not his natural bent. This is not his natural inclination. But the chastening, the discipline, the musar is centered around God. And God does give us the understanding. He gives us the pattern. He shows us what it's about. He even shows us how He does it. And fathers who do not train their children in this way are said to hate their children. He who spares the rod hates his child. And and that's regardless of how you feel about them. That is an objective truth. Because you are not training them with a theocentric education. Or the third point that we must glean along our journey is that this discipline or this chastening, this musar, which God often does via the testings and the trials, must never be evaluated as primarily negative. Musar is not negative. Discipline is not negative. Chastening is not negative. It has unpleasantries. It has unpleasant things for the moment. Yes, even the chastening of the Lord is unpleasant for the present time, but in the end it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Therefore, do not chide or despise or stand down upon the chastening of the Lord. Receive it. But it's not a negative thing. No good thing will God withhold from those who love Him. It's good. But see, the the point is that the disciplining and the chastening must be evaluated as primarily a positive thing, not negative. It has to reveal and train hearts that are not being bent toward the things of God, but against the things of God. We come into this world and our mind is at enmity against God by our wicked works. Colossians informs us. The wicked go away from the wound. Speaking lies, they go astray as soon as they come out of the wound. Psalm 55 tells us. The discipline of Yahweh is not to be taken negatively. Now here we have in Deuteronomy 8, it says, He led you these ways in these 40 years to humble you and to test you. 
And what was the humbling and the testing that God was doing through trials that he would do? It was to see if what their heart was, if they would love the Lord in their heart, to know their heart. It was actually to reveal their heart to themselves. It was to expose something of themselves before themselves and to themselves. God knew what was in their heart. But through the trials and through the testings, God would humble them and not only reveal their heart, He would shape their hearts. But notice here, as He humbled them, verse 3, He allowed them to hunger. He allowed them to hunger. He led them in the path where they would hunger. That's a basic essential of life. You know how they responded? Oh, God just brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. And their heart is being revealed because they're not trusting what he's about to do. They're not trusting what he had just done. They're not seeing the works of God in their midst. And so they complain. But did God bring them out to starve them into the wilderness? Absolutely not. Does God bring you into the wilderness to starve you? Does He bring you into seasons of life or the chastening to humble you and to test you to see what is in your heart for bad? No. The discipline, the musar of God should never be seen as primarily negative. It should not be seen as negative. For even in the very hardships that God led them to, and He humbled them, at the same time, He then rains down manna from heaven. He brings them to a place of hunger. He knows what He's going to do. He brings them now through these trials and this this admonishment and this humbling time. But He knows what He's doing. He knows where it's going. And the manna from heaven was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. (coughs) Jesus would use that very verse as he was battling Satan in his great temptation in the wilderness years later. Thus, their teaching, the instruction, was so that their hearts would be turned to Yahweh, who was disciplining them, who was chasing them, who was Musar, giving them a theocentric education. Now, all the while there was humbling through the trial, there was God's provision. Father's instruction, your instruction and love are always to accompany the humbling discipline process that is sometimes necessary when you have to make difficult decisions for your children, when you have to apply the rod of correction, whether it be the literal rod of correction or the figurative rod of correction, depending on what the situation calls for and depending on the age of the child, as long as you are fathering your children, 
that rod will be unpleasant. But at the same time, you are to bring in and accompany that rod with instruction. That's the purpose. And love so that they will know. This discipline should be considered an education that is centered upon God, fixed upon Him, pointing to Him, and it really is all about God. And for the next point, I want us to look at another chapter here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. So skip over a couple of pages to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to read now the first seven verses of Deuteronomy 11. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, His greatness and His mighty hand and His outstretched arm, His signs and His acts which He did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. What he did to the armies of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which He did. The chastening of the Lord is something that the children themselves knew, and they saw accompanying with every great act which the Lord He did. And you saw what He did. And you saw what He, four, three times He emphasizes, you saw what He did. There was a purpose and a point with all of the humbling and the testing and the discipline and the chastening. And it was all good to show them God Himself and His work among them as their God, as His people. So the fourth point we must consider is that the theological basis for discipline is grounded in the covenant relationship which Yahweh establishes with His people. Verse 2 is our word. I speak to you, I do not speak with your children who have not known, who have not seen the Musar of the Lord. No, I'm speaking to you who have seen the Musar of the Lord. Musar. Chastening. Now notice here in the chastening, it is the chastening of Yahweh. The word Lord there is capital L-O-R-D, and that denotes the tetragrammaton. It's the word from which has got some complexities in itself, but it is the proper name of God that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, who shall I tell them that sent me? You say, I am sent you. It is what we refer to as the proper name of God. Now, there are many names of God throughout the Old Testament and even in the New. These would be considered more like appellatives or titles. 
But all of those names that are assigned to God, the Spirit of God gives us to reveal some attributes, something of a characteristic of God. There's El, El Elyon, Elohim. Adonai. All of those are, are what the Spirit has given and many more of them to understand characteristics of God. Now, we cannot understand God. We can't understand Him exhaustively or fully, but we can understand some things about God and we can know Him personally. But God is so holy and separate from His creation and even His creatures that to know Him fully will never will never occur. But we can know about Him, and we can know His attributes, and we can know Him relationally and covenantally. And this is the word that God now uses as the covenant name of God. It is what we refer to as His proper name. And theologians have, have, have shown us that this is God's covenant name. When He wants to establish and show this very personal, intimate salvific, familial relationship with His chosen people, He uses the name Yahweh. And here we have the chastening of Yahweh. The very theological basis for the discipline, this Musar is grounded in the covenant relationship that Yahweh has with His people. It's filled with complexity, filled with marvel. His name is filled with holiness, self-existence. And verse 2 reveals that Yahweh chastens His people even like a father does His children. The Musar of Yahweh, this discipline, this chastening of Yahweh is His mighty activity in covenant history by which He reveals Himself. Now there's a key point for us. It is through this Musar activity that Yahweh is revealing Himself to His people throughout covenant history. So we need to understand that the theological basis for discipline is grounded in the covenant relationship we have and our children have with God. It is how God is revealing Himself in a wayward world. It is how God reveals Himself in a world that is cast into chaos and anarchy. He brings in Musar, justice. The word justice, for God's people, is a very delightful word. It means making everything right that's wrong here. And therefore, discipline and chastening actually has primarily an overarching positive character, even though there are some unpleasantries that are sometimes associated with the word. And again, as... Hebrews would pick up, no chastening is pleasant for the present time. I remember walking out of chapel. I think I've mentioned this to you before. I was in seminary, and I was in second year Hebrew, and I was in a particular class that um, was not required. Um, first year Hebrew uh, was required for all the seminary grads, but usually it's only the Ph.D. students that went on for second year Hebrew. And I took it as an elective 
Uh, it was the hardest class I took in all a seminary, and I took it as an elective. Uh, and therein was a very unusual class because I had the instructor, I had one PhD student, and myself. And he graded on a curve. <laughs> that was not, not, not good. Um, and here I was in this class, and I, I've never been in a class with such high accountability. You come in and for 50 minutes, four times a week, and you would sit in front of the professor, and he just he doesn't talk to you like a class anymore. He talks. He says, "Marion, um, what what all did you get done this week?" And he he tells you in the class that you can only get out. You will only get out of the class what you put into it. But he also says that you can't put in everything that I'm going to ask you to put into it. You're just going to have to judge your time. I'm thankful he told me that last thing. Um, but as we were going through this, it, it was hard. It was very hard. And I remember coming out of the chapel one day, and I was heading toward a, um, a Hebrew exam, and one of the other professors of the Hebrew department, uh, who was this very pastoral man, always with a cheerful countenance, he goes, Marion, how's it going? And I look at him, I'm like, second year Hebrew is how it's going. And he puts his arm around me, and we're walking toward the class, and he says, no chastening seems pleasant for the present time, Marion, but the end thereof will bring the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And I thought about that. And I'm like, well, God's not chastening me through second year Hebrew. Well, yes, he was. We think of chastening as always in terms of some form of punishment. That's not the import of Musar. That's not the import of what we have here. It has some unpleasantries sometimes involved in it. Sometimes the trials in the wilderness. Sometimes waters that are bitter. Sometimes bread that is not forthcoming, at least in our view. Sometimes it has a lot of things of life that are trials and difficulties and challenges But the end thereof is something that God is working in to bring forth something better in you, something more glorious for His name, something where your love can be extended and grown and your heart stretched. I remember there was a fellow student in seminary that had a lot of pressure on him and I was asking him, Stephen, I said, how you doing? And with a smile on his face, he says, the Lord is stretching me. And I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, well, there's just a, a lot of life going on. He's stretching me. And what he means there is the Lord's chasing him. He's stretching him. He's enlarging the heart so that it can be greater filled with more grace and more love and more mercy and the characteristics of God. That's stretching. It's not pleasant for the present time. But no discipline and chastening process will go on for the rest of your life. It is but for a season because it's not about the punishment. It's about the theocentric education. Right, Junior? It's about the theocentric education. (laughs) Yes, it's all good. It's all good. So let me reiterate some of the points we're picking up along the way. Number one, the Hebrew word musar. Is providing our context for the Old Testament background of how we earthly fathers are to follow God's pattern and to lead our children in the Lord 
in this theocentric education. Number two, fathering our children, which includes training and discipline, includes a correction which results in this theocentric education. There has to be a resetting, a correction from their bent to a new direction in the Lord. And that is why when we come to our text next Lord's Day, it's going to say, you train them up in the Lord. But that requires correction. Number three, while discipline of our children includes some unpleasant aspects, it must be primarily considered as positive and not negative. The emphasis should not be upon the punishment, but on the education. The punishment or the unpleasant things is only to gain the attention of the heart so that then we can then learn what God wants us to learn. Number four, the theological basis for Musar, this discipline, is grounded in the covenant relationship that Yahweh has with his people. And we still have another point to go here, but I'll make it brief. As we train up our children and discipline and correct them along their way, we should always, always, always have the Lord at the very center of every bit of what we do in bringing correction and instruction to our children. It always leads upward to God, their creator. God is the vision that we must have in our fathering of our children. And God must be the vision our children began to understand in all of our decisions for them, all of our practices, all of those applications of the many principles of the word that's being lived out The entire perspective of all that we're doing is raising our children to be God-centered. Not to be like us in all of our ways. Not to do everything that we necessarily think. But the greatest joy is to know that our children are walking in the truth. And that brings me to my fifth point, which pulls it all together, the theological basis for an earthly father's discipline of his son is in the covenant. In the covenant. This word musar bears this out through all of the instruction in the Proverbs and in that wisdom literature where it brings this to bear upon all that God had revealed to us in this word. A father bears the image of his covenant Lord in his home. And as such, he stands in a parallel relationship over his children, chastening and correcting and instructing and providing, which are the expressions of their interpersonal relationship of love. A father stands in a parallel relationship with God as the covenant image head in his home. And he is used as God's tool to to show and to correct his children and to show them God in the time that he has in his authority over them. There is reproof, there's correction. But those reproofs and corrections are said to come from Yahweh. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father the son in whom He delights. Your children, children, you have to to see this. Fathers, you're going to have to apply this. 
The discipline of your children assures them of their sonship. It reveals God and His covenant relationship with His people. And it primarily points to a God-centered way of life. And it is only secondarily, hear this, it is only secondarily referring to ethical behavior. Primarily about a God-centered way of life, a God way of thinking about life, a God way of living life. Secondarily, ethical behavior. The training up and the musar and the discipline and chasing is not primarily about their ethical behavior. It's not about rules and do's and don'ts. Not primarily, though that comes into a place. It has its place, but not primarily. Fathers are to train up their children as God trains up His children. The key word for us is musar. And as fathers, we must remember our objective is to have children that are walking in the truth. In the truth. Dads, we're only going to have our children for a number of years, at least under our our authority, under our household They're going to spend the majority of their years outside of our authority under the Musar of God. And dads, just remember that. You're not going to get all of this training in by the time they leave their homes. You can't control how they're going to respond to your training, but you can cultivate a heart and you can be obedient to God and hopefully start young and driving out the foolishness with the rod of correction and showing and teaching them in their minds and teaching them in their hearts and formulating this. But it is going to require an act of grace and supernatural work of the Spirit regenerating their lives. You need to trust God that that will do that. You need to stand upon the promises, but all of this is contained in the very covenant. And you stand as the covenant head of your household, as an image of the covenant head of that household, where God Himself, Christ, is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. And here we have children coming in under this headship. Hopefully our children will always be in the circle of our influence. Hopefully we'll always be able to provide counsel to them. But there comes a time when our musar is completed and God's will take over. And trust me, dads and children, musar of God will continue the rest of your life. Your pastor is experiencing Musar of the Lord in the last couple of months of his life. And this Lord is, the, the, the Lord is bringing this text to mind in a very clear and crystal way that the chastening of the Lord is not pleasant for the present time, but in the end it does bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. It's a good thing. And therefore the Scripture says, don't, Have your knees to buckle. Don't resist it. Don't despise it. Don't complain about it. It won't last forever. It has a purpose. It has a deliberate aspect to it. It's not about the punishment. It's about 
bringing us more into the conformity with the image of Jesus Christ and being more theocentric in our lives and in our hearts. A couple of weeks ago, some of you as were able to watch an incredible feat by SpaceX as they sent a little capsule named, was it Dragon? Carried on the back of this Falcon 9 rocket with these booster engines. An incredible feat of ingenuity. But here was this little capsule. The capsule is what carried the two men to their destination. But the rocket was only to get them out of perhaps the Earth's atmosphere and the major part of the gravitational pull. The booster rockets were to send the capsule on a particular trajectory, and when their part was done, they broke off and come back and they just land. Their their, their job was done. They didn't take the Dragon capsule nor the two astronauts in it to its final destination. And fathers, we're a lot alike those booster rockets with our children. You're not going to carry them to your destination personally. God will do that. But He's using you as an instrument and a means of grace to get them out of the gravitational pull of sin. It's going to take grace. It's not your job, but it will take your responsibility in taking heed to the covenant promises and and laying out before God your prayers and to be training and correcting and disciplining and chastening and admonishing your children in love and teaching them the things of God. And in the process of that, the Spirit of God works in all of that in a mysterious way to get them out of the atmosphere, apart from the gravitational pull of sin, and pointing them in the right trajectory. And then the booster rockets fall off, and they go out of the home, and and, and now God's in control completely, apart from your authority. And you can trust Him for this. You can relax in this. Some of that pressure has been taken off. I'm hoping that there be multiple applications that the Spirit can encourage you with in this. God will continue to train your children long after they leave your home. Fathers, we're going to fail, and we're going to fail often. Our children will see our failures. They will think about it. They will talk about it. They will point them out. And when they do, that's dishonoring for them to do so. But you are to love them. And you are to pray that God will use you as that instrument to be that booster in their lives, pointing them in the right trajectory, and that God would work through this whole covenantal process to show them the glory of God in their homes. By that, their progress will happen quicker, hopefully. But fathers, to give your children that musar, that 
theocentric education, it's going to require some unpleasantries, not just for your children, but for you. To rebuke and correct and to train up in righteousness, to correcting foolishness with the rod of correction. Later as they get in life, to have those confrontations that you really don't want to have, but you have to have anyway. Disciplining in them is to get their heart's attention so that they turn their attention to God. It is not because I said so as your father. That is not where the buck stops in your home. It's because God is glorified when you are obedient at home. And all the discipline, all the musar, all the correction, all of the admonishment, all of this is a training in love. Without this training, they do not know that they are a son. Without this training that God has for us, He only chastens those whom He loves. And by it is is shown the sonship that we are family of God. And He loves us. And our children need to know that. That we love them. See, we, we don't discipline our children. We don't train them up for our personal reasons to accommodate ourselves personally, but it is unto God. And we always need to be showing our children the Lord. If you ever get in the habit of training your children, you have a correction factor that you do, whether it be the rod of discipline or whatever it is that you're going through, and you never stop and pray with your children and and lead their hearts to seek God's forgiveness because they ultimately sin against Him, not just you, you're just missing it all over the place. Your emphasis is primarily upon the correction and the, and the punishment, or perhaps maybe the ethics, but not the love and the heart for God. And all of this has to begin with the Father's life. He has to be that example, one that His children can see the fatherly love in Him, the fatherly care, the fatherly rebukes, the fatherly chastening, the fatherly desire to walk in the truth. So fathers, our position is in a parallel relationship, in a sense, right, with God, with your children. Ultimately, God is over it, but the way that your children are going to interpret and view God will often be by the way that you have trained them and disciplined them and loved them or not. They will have an impact in their lives based upon how they view God through how you have lived and dealt with them as their father. They're going to have opinions about God based upon your fatherliness. And they need to learn God's love for them through you. It's not about rules and do's and don'ts, though those are important. It's about seeing God and walking in the truth and loving their covenant God. It is love for God that this is about. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we learn what it means to be your children, we pray that you would teach us how to be godly fathers to ours. And we pray that you would guide us in the gospel. We know that it requires grace things that we are not in control of, things that we cannot manipulate. But we do pray for our children and that you would give them thy great salvation and the Spirit of God working in them and through them 
giving us wisdom how to point their hearts upward and to forge and form them upon the things of heaven, not upon the things of the earth, to be a holy and righteous people. And we pray for the grace, not only for them, but for us as we lead them in the counsel of God. We pray that you would bless this time around your table, that we might know the love of our God who has invited us here this day to feed us with the heaven, bread from heaven, his own Son, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.